Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution and increasingly in the service of finding a way through to a viable, flourishing future that we would be happy to leave to the generations that come after us. With that in mind, my guest this week is Isla McLeod. She says of herself, I am a creator of ceremonies, a ritual designer, a transformational healer and companion at the thresholds. Inspired by nature, forged by my longing, devoted to remembering, lover of moss, mushrooms, trees, wild swimming and moonlight. She says, we are alive at an extraordinary time when the future of this earth rests in our hands and the potential for change is ripe and beckoning. We are being called back to the natural world. We are being called home. I would love to walk beside you, fellow human, on this journey home. And that's exactly what we did. As if we were sitting in a roundhouse across the fire, we explored what Isla does and how she is and how she got there and where she sees us all going. It was a very beautiful, firelit, rich conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. People of the podcast, please welcome Isla McLeod. So, Isla McLeod, welcome to Accidental Girls podcast on this distressingly warm January morning. We don't seem to have had winter and we've moved straight to a kind of cloudy version of May, which is quite worrying for me. Anyway, how are you and where are you? I forgot to ask that. Are you in Devon? Do I remember? I'm in Somerset. Somerset, not even close. Well, kind of next to Devon, yes. Near the River Brew and a place actually not far from where five rivers all start, just up the hill. Yay. And kind of near Glastonbury this is my English geography yeah. falling apart yeah. okay. in the realm of so, alrighty magical part of England if not the whole of Britain so in your description of yourself on your website you are a celebrant amongst other things a lot of other things and before we look at what is most alive for you just now can you give us a brief background of of how you came to be all those other things and a celebrant. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Manda. Um, well, I think from early on, I was uh, introduced to some very different cultures by being brought up in partly in Lagos, Nigeria, partly in Japan, and also going to boarding school in England. But having my doors open to these very alive, rich cultures, um, the Igbo and Yoruba traditions in Nigeria and the particularly Shinto Buddhism, I think helped me to see that there was this way of honouring spiritual life in the everyday that was really absent in our culture. And then starting boarding school at eight um, was obviously a big part of my story, oh. just acknowledging that separation from family, but also from a sense of home or really understanding my roots or a sense of belonging. 
so that led to this, you know, kind of, kind of messy adolescence um, mm. and then through to university, coming out at 21 and moving to London depressed and addicted in various ways and completely lost, feeling like there was just no meaning in what I was being presented as a, opera, like a path forward as an adult in this culture. Uh, so the first few years after university were very deep in partly hedonism and then on, on my own going deep into inquiry of just asking, you know, why am I here? Mm. And thankfully, through a sort of winding path, I ended up going to a meditation retreat centre in Devon, the barn, and had an amazing opportunity to meet with a travelling beautiful monk there um, called Shen Yen. And he just opened something in me, a, a part of me that was able to remember that there was this whole other way of seeing life imbued with the sense of the sacred and that we all have this purpose that we are here to bring to life, that we have gifts to offer. And so I changed my life very intentionally then and I said, I'm not going to be a part of this system. I want to devote myself to spiritual service. Um, but I didn't really know how that looked <laughs> and didn't have any elders. So through actually then going and spending a year at that retreat and working as a volunteer, and that meant, you know, stepping out of all of the ways of distraction that I had come to, to try to avoid that pain that I was feeling and the disconnection um, and having to really face it. And through that, it kind of led on a lovely winding journey of um, then falling in love and then experiencing heartbreak which plunged me into this intentional exploration of the darkness, which having really benefited from the Buddhist teachings, I felt that there was a lot around transcendence and escaping our human condition. When my body, my wild animal body, wanted to know how to be in ecstasy, in love with life in this form and so I, I found myself actually going to live in some woods on my own in Sussex and I lived in a yurt and devoted myself to, well, it was partly unlearning and unravelling from my culture and also then remembering and bringing back together all those parts of myself that I had felt cut off from in our culture. And that journey enabled me to devote myself to nature as an apprentice and particularly through the portal of the seasons and the cycles, come back into this way of living cyclically and also through the elements, finding these keys of um, how I could understand myself as completely embedded with, connected with the natural world. And just through exploration in that time um, with ceremony and ritual, I came to see it as this... Um, tool for connecting with the sacred with the invisible realms and also during that time enjoying this amazing um, experience of connecting with the trees for the first time intentionally working with a different tree each lunar cycle and finding that I could learn from the medicine that the trees offered and embody more of this wisdom that they um reflect for us as humans so the trees have become very dear teachers to me and I devoted myself to an initiation with the yew tree during that time around my Saturn returns and that opened up this amazing path of connecting with my ancestors and 
that in itself became part of my purpose for being here, of, of how to remember and honour those who came before, creating bridges to the invisible realms and helping others find ways that are authentic for them to connect with the sacred and cultivate a spiritual path that's relevant and authentic and rooted in the natural world. So there is so much in all of that. And I definitely want to get to how you're working now, because it's absolutely aligned with what we're doing with Accidental Gods, and it will perhaps give people a new view into that and and help people to learn through what you're doing. But I'd like to take a step back, because I think a lot of people are where you were when you were 21 and just out, out of university, not that they've necessarily been through boarding school. I'm kind of impressed that you got through boarding school and were able to do the journey that you have done, because it seems... Maybe it's just Eton. But the boys' boarding schools definitely seem to be very deliberate inhibitors of empathy and the capacity for self-reflection. They turn out people who are psychopaths from the moment they leave, and that's a very structured path to get there. Mm -hmm. And maybe you were just the lucky one who escaped, because there are a few. might be interesting to look at that. But to go more deeply into the sense of alienation, it seems increasingly to me that people are becoming aware of their need for being and belonging and a sense of the beyond. And that you were able to feel that with enough self-awareness to step back and go to the barn and I guess end up working there. Was that because you already had a Buddhist background or was it that you needed mentorship and it was being offered there? And, And to be fair, I think within the spiritual traditions of this land that you're now working in, there's there's very little actual mentorship that one could trust. So let's head back into London and can you tell us a little bit more of the experience of waking up out of the modern dream? Does that make sense as a question? Do you mean so once I had made the decision to leave or? No, I mean the process of getting to that. So I felt like the time I spent in London was the necessary breakdown of the ideal that I was presented with in our culture of how to live, which was get a good education, go to university, go and get a job, earn well, settle down. None of those things spoke to me on a, on a soul level. And yet this was the only options that I saw before me. And whether that's because I just didn't have enough people in my life that had walked alternative paths And certainly, yeah, my peers were all in a similar boat. But I found that I'd done well throughout school. I got a first university, a history, and I had these ideas of possible career paths in human rights. But actually being on the dole in East London in grey, dreary winter and feeling every morning like I didn't really want to wake up and I just wanted to stay in bed. Um, And then managing to and experiencing whether it was going out and then just really losing myself with alcohol with drugs to not feel anymore to feel like Mm -hmm. I could just pretend and put on this mask that everything was okay and I'll just try and fit in and make do because I'm very privileged in many ways and I've got these opportunities but actually it was very hard to get a job I couldn't find work what I wanted to do and I decided to do a year's photography training because I loved photography and thought maybe being creative would provide a slightly alternative path. 
But actually that just continued to play out this story of I'm not good enough. And it was always trying to compete with other people, never feeling like I could find my place in a way that was meaningful or soulful. It was just another cog in this machine. Mm. And I started reading a few you know, more spiritual books like Eckhart Tolle and things that um, came my way. But Buddhism had been certainly something that was in my awareness from living in Japan. And I had a Buddha from age eight that I still have and I love. And I think there was something in that image that really spoke to me of what was possible, of this peacefulness and this contentment that exudes from this Buddha's face of like, we're missing something here. Like this, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. And I was always innately quite rebellious. So I think there was this feeling of, well, I've done my best. I've given it a few years of, of trying to fit into this machine, but I felt I was just dwindling and losing all sense of who I was and it was actually a, a chance meeting with somebody that we spoke about meditation that I just found myself looking for a retreat center and it happened you know quite beautifully synchronistically that that Shen Yen was there and uh, it presented me with this quite radical way of like a almost like an incubation period to step away from the system and unlearn a lot of what I had been taught through education and um, just through our culture. But it provided me with a year of really just sitting with myself. We meditated you know, two hours a day and we had lots of silent periods and inquiry. So using that time as a way of coming home to myself and what did I really value? What did I hold as sacred and how do I wish to live my life? Mm. Which I am so thankful for because when you're still having to pay rent and you're still having to meet these demands that we have, it's very hard to find that space to really, well, unravel oneself and inquire more deeply. Thank you. Yes, isn't it? Which is why we need to shift the system. Yes. Working on that as we speak. <laughs> so you met Shen Yen, you had the year there in community and fell in love and heartbreak, which I guess is a one of the big rites of passage still in our culture. Yeah. And then, if I've understood you correctly, was the impetus then for three years in a yurt, mm. which is, so you've gone from living in community, experiencing the nature of community to what feels to me like quite a lot of isolation and I'm really interested in a little bit more of that experience it sounds glorious and you connected with the seasons as you do and the weather and everything that we lose when we live in centrally heated brick-built houses can you talk a little bit more about that transition because mm -hmm. living in a Buddhist monastery to living in a yurt is not an obvious path mm. how did that unfold mm. So when I finished that year at the barn, I had, yeah, this relationship that came about and then ended. And because I'd spent this year without needing to play any part of the game, I wasn't thinking about money or accommodation or work. I had love as this wonderful distraction that presented this possibility of world travel and all kinds of things. But I actually, yeah, well, I had a ceremony, which was at that stage, I hadn't done much of that kind of exploration, but something came through to honour uh, or actually invoke the darkness so that I could intentionally work with the darkness because I felt I had been up in the more etheric states of wanting to transcend, as we talked about in, in Buddhism. And the next day, this partner broke up with me very unexpectedly. So I realised that I had very much brought that about and had made this choice that I wanted to 
enter into this unknown, slightly scary realm of the darkness. And then was able to spend three months solitary on Dartmoor, actually, before I moved into the yurt, which was this time of intentional retreat. And the intention was to explore the darkness for three months. It allowed my edges to unfurl and start to explore these things which I hadn't... um, I hadn't wanted to engage with because I was afraid, I think, on some level of the power within them um, and the potential of uh, also bringing about real change and the responsibility in that once we start to work with the darkness intentionally. Hmm. So what nature of darkness are we talking about? Are we talking our own inner shadow or the darkness of the world, or the darkness of night, or the darkness of winter, or all of those. Before we get into that, I would like to unpick a little bit more about transcendence, because you've spoken of it two or three times, and for people without a Buddhist background, it's a word without meaning, other than we've just given it a polarity opposite to darkness. So can you unpick what transcendence means for you first, and then let's dive into darkness and find out more about it and and why it might be scary, but also the potential that you've found in there. Yes. Yeah, but for me, transcendence um, was this ideal in Buddhism, particularly of enlightenment and awakening, whereby you step off the wheel of suffering. And to do that, you awaken to your innate Buddha nature. To reach that state, in my understanding, there is a necessary detachment from the body, from our emotions and that polarization, that feeling of there is this invisible part of me, the spirit self, that can awaken and leave this body. And then this deep affection and knowing and care for what this temple is that I am inhabiting in this lifetime. And I wasn't happy with this idea of trying to escape this gift of life in that way of it feeling like it was like this this skin that I had to shed for me to really embody an awakened state of being for me and I think it's something to do with also that sort of the, the feminine wisdom of really wanting to awaken in this body to feel that there is a union between that so that the spirit and matter actually together can um, I don't want to say cross the threshold, but together can rejoice in that place of, of wholeness and belonging and love. Um, so although there's there's such beauty and richness in the teachings and the ideal of that, it missed something for me. And it felt often in meditation that I would be experiencing things and just being like, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not myself. And there was just this sort of bypassing of what actually was a necessary processing of a lot of trauma that I had suppressed. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I think when I thought about the darkness, it certainly included the darkness within myself, all those places that I hadn't seen or acknowledged or that I intentionally suppressed, as well as the that reflected in the whole. So what is the shadow aspect of humans as a collective? But I definitely include to hold all of that, the idea of, of darkness um, within the earth, within winter, this unknown place where it's it's full of potential of um, creativity, of silence and stillness. So I don't know if I, I fully understood then when I was calling forth this journey with the darkness that I really 
knew what I was getting myself into, but there was a call and I really wanted to honour that call. Yeah. Yes, I think a lot of my experience of the spiritual path is if we knew where we were going, we would be too scared to go there, but we only ever see a few steps on the way and that's enough to to get going. That, that otherwise the change would feel terrifying, I think. I'm very curious to know, before we move on, did your partner know that you had asked for this darkness at the point when they, the next day, separated? No, no, he was in the country, actually. Um, uh, yeah, I think I, I had a very interesting ritual involving a mask on these hills up in the Peak District, and it was wild. And I kind of look back at this as uh, that as an actual night of initiation for the whole of this next phase of my life. Um, and it just happened for me. I think the lessons came so strongly through the experience of heartbreak. Yes. Yes. And one of the first, if there are any laws around the shamanic work that we do, one of the first ones that I was taught was be careful what you ask for, you might get it. Uh, but the second one is we can ask for what we want and what we get is what we need. And so it seems to me that whatever your concept at the time of what you were asking for, in the in the unfolding of that was something that moved you and the steps on the way. So you go from Dartmoor. Just take a step back, just for my own interest. You had a year at the barn in Devon. Was that always only ever going to be a year, or did you have an option if you'd wanted to stay indefinitely? No, there were year long postings. Okay, so so that was curtailed. It does sound like an amazing gift mm. to be able to take a year out and not have to worry about earning money and being part of the rat race and just to simply sit. And I have met quite a lot of Buddhists who, who exactly as you, have challenged that sense of needing to not be embodied and have a, to have a sense of claiming the ladder of Buddhism. But I have met others who have questioned it within the teaching. It seems to be quite a a schism within Buddhist teaching, but let's not go there because that's not really our thing. So you found a yurt and I, I have a friend who's living in a bender at the moment who got home after the storm and it had basically dissolved. So I'm guessing there were quite a lot of challenges of just the logistics of living in a yurt and it's off-grid, I guess. Was this at a time when coming off all social media was a thing or was it before social media was really anchoring us or doing whatever it's doing into the world? Yeah, this was 2012. So it was before I had really engaged with any social media. I didn't really use a mobile except for the odd text message. I didn't have a laptop. So it felt quite simple then. It would be much more complicated now. But I was able to live on some land that belonged to a friend and his family that was just beautiful and yeah. wild and ancient woodland. So I was able to run water. That was the one thing that I was able to do from their water mains. But otherwise, I was off grid. Um, and this was two years that I spent in the woods and then five years in Somerset with my when I was pregnant with my son. So I was in the round for seven years. And I feel like the life could be very different if we all lived in circles, actually. I think there's something that happens in our, in our shift of perspective when we start to live in accordance with the cycles and just embodying more of that cyclical nature that we are part of. And just actually living in a circular space. I vividly remember one of the Native American teachers, I th think it might have been Sun Bear, but possibly not, saying that the people who live in square 
houses will never understand the people who live in roundhouses mm. because there's a very different mental, emotional, spiritual, energetic space when you're not in straight walls with corners. Can you just unpick a bit more for us about circles and cycles and what it feels like to inhabit the cycle of the year within a circular space? Being in a year, you're obviously that much closer to the elements as well. So you're really aware of the seasons as they change. And I was having to provide wood and prepare for the winter. So there's a lot of effort that goes into yeah, being present with what's required for the change in the seasons. And I was also growing a garden in a polytunnel, so that enabled me to be present with the stages of the seeds and that growth cycle. But honouring each of the eight festivals associated with the Wheel of the Year became very important, normally with a fire and some kind of cleansing or purging ritual or visiting a sacred site and intentionally crossing that threshold to welcome the spirit of that season so really welcoming the spirit of winter into my body and making adjustments although it was easier then just having you know coming through the winter now that involves turning off artificial lights you know just returning to the more circadian rhythms so that we don't have artificial lights in our day um we slow down except for the chopping wood and carrying water but we slow down otherwise and turn inwards and then with spring, really making that intention to uh, give birth to and let emerge what has been incubating in that time over winter. Um, noticing where we feel that energy, that emergent earth vital energy that's rising up through us and how do we want to direct that in our lives. Um, and then through the summer, noticing the more outward energy and spending more time sitting outdoors, sitting with trees, gathering plants and herbs. So really living in relationship with the natural world and noticing when things grow and how the trees change through the seasons, um, the effect of the change in light on our own inner sense of self. Um, I used to get quite cyclically depressed through the winters um, around university in those years afterwards. So I would often fear the winter approaching because I felt mm. that it was probably going to return and that was a big part of wanting to um, face my fear of really ridding myself of the distractions that would used to be um, a way of numbing myself from feeling that pain or the fear and being able to be still and present with it and notice where there are those yeah feelings of often around disconnection where I felt separate or shame, um, grief, those qualities that were allowed and given space to emerge for me would often come through in the winter time. So yeah and then being in the circle space provided a way of uh, I feel becoming whole so it, whereas we have these lines and corners in our room, it's like where all this energy can get stuck. And when we forget things, you know, we all have the cupboard in the corner where we stuff everything that we don't know what to deal with. But if you're in a circle, then everything is there to view. Everything is balanced and in, in relationship with each other. And I felt that almost rewiring happening within myself from living in that space. Also, I think things like drinking you know, wild water and washing in a bowl outdoors, just simplifying the way I lived, um, certainly helped shed more of those ways of 
being in the world that I had learned and thought were the only way that actually it was really playful to start to explore how life could look when we're just really loving life and showing up for what's being presented in that moment and what the invitation is from the natural world in terms of how we can engage. Yes, beautiful. And you're celebrating the the eight days of the year of what we have as our modern representation of what we believe was the ancient Celtic cycle of the year here. And that's not a part of Buddhism. So you'd begun then to apprentice with some of the teachers in this land, I guess? Yeah, I did start taking um, undertaking a shamanic training just as I moved into the yurt with a couple in Glastonbury. Um, and through that, I think one of the primary sort of maps that they presented me with was this lunar cycle. Right. Which the 13 sacred trees of this land each had a lunar cycle that they were connected with. So each month I would focus working with that particular tree. Right. And that provided an amazing, you know, another way of sort of 13 months of really deepening um, my relationship with and just, I mean, I think trees are such an amazing reflections of our human potential. So just spending time with them and realising that they were alive, sentient beings with something to teach me was quite radical from my upbringing. It wasn't something I was doing at school. And that did involve a lot of that, of needing to um, reassure myself, I suppose, that things I was doing were okay or that, you know, I wasn't completely losing my mind. There were times I felt I needed to actually quite intentionally push that so that I was delving into the realms of what might be considered insanity because I felt that was where there was a lot of potential that wasn't being used. So let's really look into that because this is something that I find with the shamanic work a lot is how to help people reach that threshold and yet be able to step back into an ability to function in consensus reality mm. without somebody turning up with lithium and a padded cell. Mm -hmm. Can you just, in whatever way feels good, explore more of how it feels to step off the edge and maybe even what the edges are? Mm. Because even having this conversation in, in certain parts of our consensus reality would already be over that threshold. So I think the threshold itself is quite expansile mm. and mobile. Where was it for you, whatever you can share of stepping off, and then how did you anchor so that it was possible to come back? Because I have met some people that certainly for me have crossed it and, and it seemed to have no way back. I guess for them the threshold is probably in a different place. But you are, as far as my sets of realities, well anchored in what I would consider grounding. Mm. And for me, grounding is the coherent part of, or the necessary part of remaining sane and everything else then becomes fluid around it. So where is the boundary for you? What does it feel like to cross it and how do you come back? Mm. Well, at that stage, I think my boundary was fairly small in terms of just being raised in a culture that has a certain ideal of what normal is I'd certainly you know played around a bit with creativity and you know at festivals particularly I'm thinking out in my early 20s had some great fun pushing a few boundaries in expressing myself and those kinds of um those kinds of realms but when it came to being on my own and 
I think it started with thinking of like, am I really receiving this as an inspiration or as, as an idea to carry out a ritual in a certain way, for instance? Or is am I just making this up? Is this coming from somewhere beyond me? So there was a lot of self-checking. I think that helps. I think if I was just following things off on a complete whim, I might have lost myself quite a while ago. A brief interjection. How did you establish the answer to that question? I don't know if I have fully. I still certainly experience doubt. And um, I think this is what a big part of my work feels I would like to encourage in others is placing more value on the invisible, the imaginal realms, because in our, we've really lost the, the, the importance of how what we don't see is just as integral and a part of our web of life. So it's just really coming back to trusting and putting, you know, whether it's embodying really a strong stance, feet on the ground, feeling my roots in and that alignment with the sky and really honestly checking in with myself. Does this feel true for me now? Mm. And I think also coming through feeling like even if I am making this up, it's still coming from somewhere and there's still value in that. So follow it. So I think having a real playfulness and curiosity helps to not also, because I could be a bit serious too with these things, like it must be right, I must be you know, doing a good spiritual job here. And I think that just opening up a bit of humour and just saying, oh, what happens if I do this? And what happens if what that tree just said is true? How does that make me feel? Where does that feel in my body? So listening, a deep listening practice, I suppose, is what helps more than anything of listening when there's a resonant yes in my body or when there's a contraction, when it feels like mm, this isn't coming from a place that feels aligned or rooted. Beautiful. Yes. And and that, I think, for the people listening, because we have a lot of people who are playing with these edges, and it seems to me that that is the key. It doesn't matter. What matters is how does it feel in the moment? And if I go along with this, where do I get to? And if I get to a good place, then wherever it came from really doesn't matter. I think we have, perhaps it's a Judeo-Christian thing, perhaps it's just normal in the human psyche to have a sense that there is something out there that is going to give us absolutely accurate answers mm -hmm. if we just learn to ask the right questions. And then everything will be fine and we don't have to bear any responsibility or have any creativity. We just have to follow orders. Mm. And and once in a while, I do get stuff in plain text that does say, do this, this, and this, and then this will, you know, and then wait to see what happens. But most of the time, that's extremely rare. And most of the time, it's going with what feels right. So, because this is very much where a lot of Accidental Gods members, and I suspect listeners are at, is finding that inner place of being sufficiently happy that we're on the right track, that we can keep moving forward without having the amazing capacity to spend two years in a yurt first. So you're now teaching other people. Do you have techniques that work for helping people to find that inner yes in a way that most of the time allows them to move forward with inner balance? So have you got a way of helping people find their baselines? Mm. Well, with all my work, and I think what is required on a collective level is for this shift of our perception to 
include the awareness that we are all intimately connected with the web of life and are a part of nature. When we have that understanding as the foundation of all of our action, thinking, loving, living in the world, then there is this opportunity for us to connect with forces beyond ourselves that might help us trust in a deeper way that isn't just this limited sense of I, but actually when I have, for instance, um, if I'm doubting myself, I might call upon, you know, my benevolent ancestors. I need my ancient grandmother to come and just sit by me a minute. Can we have a conversation and just help me check in with myself here? I need some advice. That might seem a bit far out, but yeah, 10 years ago, I certainly wasn't having those conversations with the dead. But now it's become something which is, is of such value because it helps me remember that there are so many ways of knowing that are not just the rational left brain I see, that we can actually develop the capacity to really listen well to our body's response. We have this amazing vessel that is through our senses, through these portals and through all of the ways that we feel, being able to give us the answers, essentially. If we ask a question and we're really able to be present with what arises, we will be able to feel a yes or a no response. But in our culture, and because we've become you know, in a way, we've got this collective amnesia that we've just forgotten so much of this. We're not connecting with that sense of embodied awareness. We're also not connecting with those other beings that are a part of the web of life that can help show us the way, help us remember. And so through my work, I often create through any space, a sacred space, and call upon the elements as a way of grounding us in this time and space but also then helping that individual remember that their body is the earth, that their blood are the waters of the earth, that the air they breathe comes from all the other beings that are exhaling, and that the fire within them is this sense of purpose and meaning, this call to live, really, the warmth in our bodies is this fire, this creative energy. And just having that awareness, just plugging back into the mainframe, as it were, and remembering that all that we are is part of the whole is a vital way of just helping people uh, remember that, their innate wholeness. And then through that, a lot of the work I do is, I hope, in a way of um, creating experiences of the sacred for people so that they touch upon that mysterious, invisible quality that maybe in their everyday life they don't get to very much. And hopefully that would activate, awaken some of the seeds within them. We all carry these seeds. None of us don't have the seeds that are our original instructions, if you will, or you know, our unique gifts that, that can be activated. And just through us remembering that we are carriers of life, that we actually have this opportunity to bring forth these gifts and help these seeds grow in our own little way um so empowering people to remember that that they have a purpose and that their way of creating a spiritual life however that might look is completely dependent on all of the things that bring them inspiration their background maybe their culture and what they've inherited that they can create a really unique and authentic spiritual life um that can help them in those times of confusion when they 
don't know how to listen inwards to that voice, that authentic, truthful voice that we can pray, that we can listen in a way that is, I know pray might have a few connotations for people, but just in that space of silence, asking for guidance. So there's some of the ways, I think that answers your question, of, of helping people. It does, beautifully and brilliantly, and it opens so many doors. So I definitely want to talk more about elemental work. I also really want to find out more about what the yew tree taught you. But before we head into there, one of the things that stuck out for me is when we're doing the shamanic work, our ancestor gate is, is the sixth year of 10. And it's by invitation only, because I am deeply concerned by people who haven't had a huge amount of experience connecting with ancestors recently dead, not even definitely people they may have known in life, but even ones three, four, five, six generations back. Because one of the first things I was taught was just because you die doesn't mean you get to be wise. And my experience of watching people even a few decades dead and their impact on the living, if the living don't understand how to discern carefully between those ancestors who've done whatever it is one does after life and are there actually to help and those that have their own agendas and those agendas are not necessarily good or useful or they're still working out stuff that was stuff in life that had never got worked through. And so I want people to be really clear that they understand and are have sufficient help in the shamanic worlds not to get into trouble. And I'm really interested in, you clearly do ancestor work. You have a, a far distant ancestor that you ask for help, as I do, and they are incredible resources. How do you help people not get into trouble? Something just on the side that I feel to say is that there is something about acknowledging absolutely the inherited trauma that we collectively have, and particularly those in power. It really helps me cultivate compassion when I acknowledge that those in power, particularly in this country, went to boarding school, for instance, that I, I know for myself is a very traumatic experience, that we can't um, move forward unless we acknowledge that trauma. And indeed, working with the more recent ancestors has so many potentials for engaging in spirits with spirits that do not wish well for the living. Whether that's because they haven't crossed over fully or a number of reasons, we don't want to be um, invoking them in ceremony. We don't want to be working with them without a guide that someone that has that kind of expertise. And I don't feel I do to do that kind of work. But what I do encourage is a connection with an ancestral energy. For a retreat I held, we worked with the idea of the ancient grandmothers and we created a council of ancient grandmothers with their stones, actually, which I'm holding mine here. And they are the seed carriers of your maternal lineage. So the first right. creator, if you like, of your lineage. And that might not even be in human form. It comes in different forms to people. But connecting with that archetypal energy is one way um, that I work. But also, in for my own journey, it was hugely healing for me to start to visit places that were significant to my ancestors and also sacred sites that have that ancestral energy present. Um, so I went on a pilgrimage to the Isle of Lewis, where my paternal line come from. Um, I've been to places around the British Isles, 
to honour those that came before me. And it can be as simple as that. It doesn't need to be right. I need to look at this relationship with my grandfather that was always really difficult and heal that. It can actually be about going to visit their graves and singing with them, making offerings and just creating an aliveness and a respect for all that they did for us to be here now. And just honouring of also, the, I think in so many other cultures, those that I was brought up in, that relationship with the ancestors is a part of everyday life. It's something that every day they're checking in with them or they're feeding them at the altar. And I feel like just that shift in our culture could be so huge if we were having more of that kind of dynamism and reciprocity with our ancestors. Yes, interesting. We'll head off into somewhere else in a minute, but I am just very aware that for me, a lot of things opened up when I began with my morning ceremony, not only to connect to those who have been and to thank them and to share as much of the day as possible with them in ways that are safe, that we won't go into now, but also then to connect with the generations yet to come and to acknowledge that I'm standing as the present representative of those who have been and those yet to come, human and non-human, and to ask for the wisdom of both to inform the present and that that was a huge shift in my own mm. work with the world, I think. And it happened in the middle of COVID, I suppose, because just I was able to give morning ceremony hours instead of minutes and and you know, other stuff arises when you do that. Mm. So, yeah, I love the idea of really connecting with the archetypal energies. You do hold ceremonies and you're helping other people to find ceremony in their lives. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you're working now, we spend a lot of time on how you got here. What's happening for you now and what are you doing that's most alive? Well, I, I'm available for any type of ceremony that people need support with. And I love that. I love just being in service to my community. So that might look like um, weddings or hand fastings or blessing ways for pregnant mothers or namings for babies. But where I'm working more one-to-one -one with clients is to create a container for them through a process of transformation. So uh, a lot of my work, and this is I think why we started talking about death initially, was that I realized I felt a lot of my work was helping people prepare to die well through these opportunities in life of having rites of passages where we experience a death of a part of ourselves, we can really begin to train and prepare for our actual death at the end of life. So I'm really interested in that space of sort of transformation and how to hold people through that in a way that is resonant for them so not drawing on you know any spiritual tradition as such very much rooted in the natural world but finding images archetypes and ways that resonate to best support them through that process so that could be ritual it could be embodiment practices breathing pilgrimage um it's yeah never looks a certain way but this winter, actually, I've been holding something called Hearthcraft uh, Sessions. And this has been a circle with women that was inspired by, so to say, my ancient grandmother kind of gave this one to me as some homework to do, which was to gather women together to weave with winter and to really honour the darkness as this portal of transformation that we can intentionally create and use this energy, this time to be 
incubating and then weaving together what we wish to see birthed in life come spring. So we've spent each session working with a different plant or tree and making something, crafting something and sharing and singing and drumming. And it's felt so nourishing to come together in that way and, and yeah, remember that this was the ways that I feel women would have gathered in the roundhouse around the fire in winter. That sounds so amazing. And is that in person? Despite COVID, you're actually meeting physical people in a physical space. Yeah, with a fire, with a hearth. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Yay. And I, I don't, it doesn't feel like another lockdown is coming, but you know, famous last words, if it does, would you continue that virtually? Are, are you working virtually or just, is everything done in person? I did quite a few virtual ceremonies and things online in, in the lockdown and I have asked, have a few people ask to do some more. So I'm thinking actually of doing an in bulk um, online crafting ceremony, braiding with Bridget, and yes. I'll probably do an in-person pilgrimage as well because I love walking the land at these um, seasonal cycles as well. But I mean, I'm not adverse to it online. It's a bit different. Uh, if, if it's possible to do in a, in a roundhouse or a, yeah, then I'll take that, please. <laughs> so uh, just for people listening who don't know what Embolk is, when would you do your braiding with Bridget? Mm. If they wanted to do I, I think it's going to be on February the 1st in the evening. Yay. Fantastic. People, that would be, that sounds, I'd like to do it. I'm not sure what else I'm doing, but it sounds great. I'm really interested in our approach to death. It feels to me as if perhaps because of COVID, perhaps because the climate emergency is now so obviously an emergency, that as a culture, death is feeling more imminent and our capacity to deny it is also greater. We watched Don't Look Up on New Year's Day, uh, which is an American satire. An asteroid is approaching. The scientist sees it a long way out and goes, you know, so we've got six months and 14 days, we're all going to die. And then everybody goes, no, we're not. Or, yeah, well, it's not important. We've got the midterms. Yeah, we'll deal with it after that until it's actually visible. And even then, the kind of Trumpa-like is going, no, they're telling you that's there because they want you to be afraid. Just don't look up. And then they're going, but it's there. <laughs> we can see it. And it was a really interesting and quite scarily accurate evocation of our complete incapacity to deal with death as a reality. And yet, I'm also in the process of reading a book called White Skin, Black Fuel, I think. I can't remember. It's on my Kindle. Something like that. And it's really looking at the particularly in America, the kind of cultural tendency of the radical white supremacist right to move towards extinction rather than integration. It would be better to have apocalypse and be dead than to let everybody live an equitable life. And I think partly that's because there are huge sections of the radical right where for the Christian radical right, life begins at death and they've got an entire narrative around that. So so dying white and in charge is more important than living not in charge. And I'm wondering, in your experience, in your practice, has the attitude to death amongst your clients shifted in the last couple of years? Hmm. And if so, how? Yeah, I feel like, obviously, we've all been going through this in a collective way, the experience of the pandemic and being isolated and the death of certain ways of being. But individually, we've all had our own experience. And I feel like we're very much still in this liminal space whereby in any rite of passage, we have the separation phase and then this liminal space in between 
um, which is unknown, unfamiliar, and we're being remade. And I feel like we're very much in that at the moment. We haven't yet come back and been integrated um, by the community. So I feel like a lot of people I'm working with are in this space of not knowing, and there is fear. There certainly is this sense of what's the point? I think that sort of feeling of things have become so depressing, so we feel so disempowered. Um, and so where my work hopefully takes them is to, or by working together, that we create these sort of yeah, mini experiences of how we can approach this collective initiation that we're all a part of in a way that is um, yeah, authentic for us, that is something that we can relate with directly. So whether that's a feeling of for people that had to let go of their job or a relationship's ended as well because of things that's happened since the pandemic, where we've had to say goodbye to an old way of being, I've been creating ceremonies for people around that to really support them in actively letting go of the old. And that's something that, you know, we're so attached to the physical and we're so attached to our beliefs and our sense too of it's kind of a paradox because although we are afraid of death and we don't like to look at that look at it we very much function in this finite sense of being a human that we don't remember that we are a part of these cycles of regeneration whereby death is not an ending but it's a portal of transformation so hopefully bringing more of that awareness into the field for people to start to remove more of the fear of death and actually engage in it in a way that's more heart-centered, curious, and actually midwife ourselves through this time of transition so that we can intentionally die to this old way of being that does not work anymore. An individual thing that we're all being called to do, but collectively we need to see where things are no longer working, where there needs to be an ending of certain ways of being, of relating, of functioning. And really, either we need to grieve that which we're letting go of, we need to forgive. And these qualities that come about naturally when at the end of life for people, when people give, are given that perspective, I suppose, of their life, more often than not, they experience these qualities of forgiveness, of compassion, of love. Mm. So how can we cultivate more of that towards others and towards ourselves across this threshold rather than judgment, polarisation of, of, of opinions, fear, and actually realise that we're all in this together, ultimately seeking the same things, that we all wish to be loved and to love, even though we've really lost my sense of that I think quite quite um, deeply that we all have these these same principles that we wish to experience and to embody more love in this life so I think that the death space and, and intentionally living in a way that every day we acknowledge this could be our last day on earth how do I want to live now how can I serve life and, and love life in the way that is really honouring of this gift that I've been given to be here. I feel quite emotional saying that. I feel like death really does provide us with this opportunity to live fully as awakened and mature human beings. I think if we really did see this as this process of initiation that we're going through, to become real, authentic, mature human beings, 
then I know on a deep level that we have all this potential that we're not using as human beings and that we just need to die to this old way that we've become so familiar with and let all these seeds that are stirring within grow and thrive and blossom into this beautiful earth that I know is possible. But it just feels very far away from the reality we're being presented with. So, yeah, I think midwifing our death in a way that's really compassionate and also acknowledging that there are these cycles rather than a linear way of seeing that we've got so used to in the West can be really supportive for us through this time. That's so beautiful. That felt like such a profoundly beautiful and right and deep note to end on. Was there anything else that you wanted to say? Well, I suppose I would just wish for everybody to allow these seeds within them to be their their guidepost. Like, what is it that really wants to emerge at the moment? When we push aside the fear and we get away from the feeling of being limited and actually connect with this potential within us, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And, yeah, through this time of winter, really cherishing that time to be present with and be in this place of receptivity to allow inspiration to come forth, to allow what's rumbling in the darkness to start to take form and trust in that process. I really do believe it's all going to be okay. And I know I can only say that, and, but I, I, I know that the seeds that we carry are what we've inherited. And I know that our children will, will feed and be blessed by the seeds that we're going to grow. So yeah, I just hope that we can all remember remember that. Thank you. Thank you. That is so beautiful. So we will close on that. Isla McLeod, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. And definitely we will we will come back for podcast two at some point where we can look at you trees and everything else. Thank you. Thank you, Manda. And that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Isla for the depth of her thinking, for the journey that she's travelled and for the integrity that she brings to her work. I very rarely spend so much of a conversation putting my thumb up and cheering silently in the background as someone is describing how they see the world, how they live in the world, how they think the world could be. And Isla has a new book coming out on the 22nd of September, Rituals for Life, a guide for creating meaningful rituals inspired by nature. And so we just agreed that she will come back for podcast number two, on the 21st of September, the equinox, the day before that is released. So you can put it in your diary and get ready for it now. And meanwhile, we will be back next week with another conversation. Thanks in the meantime to Caro C for the production, the engineering and the music at the head and foot. To Faith Tilleray for the website and for all the conversations that make this happen. To Anne Thomas for the transcripts and to you for listening. We absolutely would not be here without you. If you're feeling keen and kind, you could go on to Apple Podcasts and rate us and give us a five stars and a review. That really does help everybody to know that we're here. But more, if you know of anybody else who really wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.